Michelle Barard. I'm your host, Michelle Barard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guests on the May 10th show, diversity and inclusion expert Treste Loving. You can connect with Treste at her website, tiredofhate.com. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the May 10th show, at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a super important message, and we really should share it with the youth. But remember, guys, it's not just for the youth. We all need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I'm really happy to introduce tonight's guest. Donald R. Hunter specializes in leadership, employee engagement, and productivity. He dedicates himself to help leaders create transformation in their own performance and then in their organizations, which results in highly productive employees, customer loyalty, and increased bottom line performance. Donald deeply engages with clients to create rapport and long-term relationships. He effortlessly expands his client's leadership effectiveness. His magical intuition merged with his ability to quickly shift perspectives far exceeds his client's expectations. Donald has designed an executive coaching program that establishes a foundation for each client and clarifies professional goals, then develops your ability to inspire. He combines this insight with his client's talents and skills to create a coaching plan used as an accountability and decision-making framework for continuous improvement. Donald's mission as a corporate manager and currently as an executive coach is to strengthen his clients' performance and connect their passions to their key accountabilities. So I'd like to welcome Donald Hunter to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Burrard. Thank you, Donald, for being on the show. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you. Um, 
you have quite a, a, a journey, quite a background, and I'd like you to share that with the audience. And the way that I like to do that is by asking you two questions. So if you're ready, I'll ask those questions. I'm ready. Okay. So Donald Hunter, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Uh, who am I? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, the initial uh, response would be, you know, I'm a, I'm a business coach and, you know, I'm a father and, you know, uh, I'm an ex-husband, but, you know, who I am, I'm a son of God. I, I would say that's who I am foremost, but I'm also those other things. And uh, so I'm a very uh, spiritual in that sense. Uh, and I'm very passionate about business uh, and also uh, developing human potential. So those are my, uh, my big uh, goals and dreams in life, serving others. And how did you become this person who is uh, spiritual, passionate about business, and and passionate about developing human potential? I would say, you know, the spiritual side, I, I certainly uh, uh, grew up in the church, uh, not necessarily all the time as I was growing up with my mother, certainly in, introduced us to uh, church and God, and she was definitely a believer. My father was too, and they both have since passed away. Uh, and then, you know, I drifted away uh, like most and have come back to it. Um, and I believe, you know, I believed I uh, received, you know, uh, uh, salvation in 1998. So it's been a it's been a while, and uh, I'm certainly a student of the word, and I, I I like to live by the word, and so that's that's that part. And in terms of business, I think since I was a teenager, I always wanted to own and operate my own business. Uh, I started off as a software developer, and I learned all about manufacturing while working at Levi Strauss and how things move through the manufacturing process and so and physical inventory and how sales worked at Levi Strauss and order processing claims processing and I also worked on the development of those systems and, uh, and then while I was there I started an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial venture around bringing data uh, to an online environment. And that was uh, prior to the internet, a couple of years before the internet uh, became uh, a household uh, name. And we just had, um, I forget the, the digits, but it was the nine whatever uh, numbers that you could call up and get information from. And I wanted to bring county data on online. So that, that was another uh, sort of me delving into business. And, and then the technology quite wasn't, wasn't quite ready at that point. So 
that's what made me want to go back to school and get a computer science degree and really understand computers at a much deeper level. So I applied and got into UC Berkeley and that's, that was my first degree because I started working as a software developer uh, before, uh, uh, before I got my first degree. Um, I went to a school uh, for disabled people because I'm, I'm visually impaired. And I lost my sight from a medication for reaction. So I went to a year-long school, did an internship at Levi, and they hired me. Wow. Um, so after Berkeley, I, I decided I did want to go to business school. That was my ultimate dream. Uh, and uh, I applied and uh, got into the Sloan School of Management at MIT. And I was married at the time, so my wife and my two kids, who were um, five and three at the time, we moved to Boston. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived there for two years and traveled all around the East Coast. MIT is a great school, really on the cutting edge, uh, drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> uh, you know, things being prepared the night before and you get it the next day in class. The internet was was uh, taking root and a lot of new businesses were being established on the net and it was just, uh, you know, an amazing time. And, uh, and so um, I traveled, you know, while I was at MIT on the East Coast and into Canada, we did a lot of weekend trips and, and so on. But I also traveled to South Africa uh, when Nelson Mandela uh, just had become president. And we did a trip there and visited a number of businesses, um, kind of understood a little bit about the culture, talked to government officials, did a safari in, in uh, Cougar Park uh, for three or four days, and and, and that was an interesting trip to see it from the inside mm -hmm. of how things were working there in South Africa at that time in 1996. I also did a trip to uh, Korea uh, with the same kind of opportunities, talking to businesses and and uh, government officials, and did the same thing in Japan. Wow. And then. After, after that, I um, accepted a position at some microsystems in Menlo Park, California, and I worked there for eight years in data center architecture and uh, security uh, software technologies and high availability systems. And um, on the marketing side, I was a product manager and a product marketing manager. And then left there and did some financial things, became a certified financial planner and didn't really like that. It's a little too narrow for me. And um, I wasn't really good at selling at that time and, and wasn't good at motivating people at that time. Then I discovered coaching and, and that's what I do now. And I've been doing for the last eight years. And I love it because now I know how to motivate people and I know how to sell uh, so that because that, uh, I had to learn how to do those things. And I like business coaching because uh, I do the transformational side of it and 
usually when someone hires me, they hire me because they think it's about their business. But as soon as they come to the first call, they want something around transformational mindset kinds of coaching. And they, they usually spend first three months wanting that kind of stuff rather than the business things because right. they understand their business usually and they just aren't performing in certain ways in certain areas and, and that's kind of mostly the help they need but I do help them with strategy marketing selling how to say something that uh, that has the, the most impact or that's the most influential mm-hmm. um, so that's 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 me in a nutshell in terms of my journey. Well, how does your spiritual side, how does your, how does your spiritual side inform how you work with your clients or does it inform how you work? It certainly does. So um, about in the end of 2014, I decided I wanted to, coach spiritual people and, and wanted to become a spiritual coach and didn't really quite know what that was and and I spent some time you know researching and reaching out to some spiritual leaders and there wasn't a lot of reception there um, uh, because I, I, I think that um, I think they don't think they need it but a lot of people don't think they need it and I think that they may be concerned that um, I would introduce things that they wouldn't want me to introduce into their congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but since then, I know how to coach someone spiritually, whether they're aware of it, aware of it or not. Uh, I can certainly diagnose what's going on a whole lot faster now. And, you know, I've studied uh, Tony Robbins, I've studied Landmark, and a number of other systems. Mm -hmm. I'm also an ICF certified coach. But I think the spiritual coaching is the most powerful. And it's nice when I'm coaching uh, a a Christian because they, you know, they want it and they don't mind me bringing up, you know, Bible verses and, and things like that. But if not, I still coach from that perspective because I think it's it's hugely powerful. In what way? I think it it uh, I think all those other systems are derived from the Bible. I think that Second Peter um, chapter one verse seven says, "God did not give us the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind." So when I'm diagnosing and I see fear, I, I know that that comes from the enemy because God did not give us the spirit of fear. Uh, the word also says, fear not, be not afraid, be not dismayed, thou shalt not fear. And so fear is a big thing in the Bible in terms of staying away from it. First uh, uh, Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 5 to 7 or 8, it says, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. So cast your cares and anxiety on onto the back of the Lord because y- you don't want that in, in you. There's only, we, we're, we weren't designed to carry stress. Um, we weren't designed to, 
to worry about negative things or what uh, what we need in the world, like clothing and food. We were designed to have a relationship with God, and he takes care of all those things. And so this whole thing around fear, I know a lot of other gurus talk about fear, but uh, some of them say that if the fear motivates you, then the fear is good. If it stops you, then you know that's when you have to do something about it. But my, my belief now is, Fear is not okay in any way. And I don't, you know, some of you may be familiar with the DISC profile, D-I-S-C, which is a behavioral assessment. And um, the D is driven by anger, passion. The I is driven by optimism. And the C is driven by fear. Hmm. And the S is not really uh, associated with any particular emotion, but S's, high S's like to keep their emotions steady. And so those are the people, they're hard to read because you only see the emotions they want you to see. Mm-hmm. But this high C is driven by fear. And my C has gone from, over the years, over the last uh, 10 years, gone from uh, around 60 C, which is uh, a moderately high C. Uh, it probably helped me when I was uh, in technology, uh, just being much more detail-oriented, following the rules, more compliant. That's what the C stands for, compliance. But now my C is about seven. I have no fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I and, and so my beliefs have changed around fear, and I'm not driven by fear at all. And when I notice fear in my body, I get rid of it immediately. So, what what would you say are some of the most common issues that you deal with with the entrepreneurs and the business leaders that you work with, with the executives you work with? I. Um, Communication, I think, is uh, one of the things, and that could fall into, well, sales and marketing as well, right? Mm -hmm. But communicating uh, with others, understanding um, how others are perceiving them, as well as uh, how to adapt their communication in order to be more effective with other people. I would say, um, you know, it, it, it ranges a, a great deal. When I come to a coaching call, I have no idea what they're going to ask me. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm prepared is I get into a powerful state of mind before I coach anyone mm-hmm. so that no matter what's thrown at me, I'm able to uh, respond. And a lot of times I, I don't. I don't know. I just ask, you know, very powerful questions. And then I'm listening to them at multiple levels. I'm holding the emotional point of view and I can, I can hear their energy. I can also, I, I hold the objective point of view in terms of what they stated that they want. And then I ask powerful questions and make sure that I define what it is that they want very clearly clearly and where we're going 
and then ask questions in terms of getting them there. One of the main questions I ask is what's preventing you from getting there right. once I understand what they want. And, uh, and then we kind of go, go from there. And a lot of times it just comes to me. It comes and I start to sense it and then I give it to them and it's what they want. So I'm very intuitive uh, as well. But I'll, I'll step back uh, and answer your question more directly. Uh, if it's a corporate client, um, I run the assessment and there are different types of assessment, but the assessment that fits this situation, behaviors, motivators, competencies, uh, maybe emotional intelligence, if it's a leader, um, this, how they go about making decisions. And then we review that. And, and now they understand their, their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, how, where they may have conflict with certain people. So once we get that awareness established, then we start coaching around what they want. So if it's in a corporate environment, I might have a 360 uh, degree feedback assessment, as well as the other assessments I mentioned. So we kind of know what's needed. And then I'll have a triad session with the, the client and their supervisor or manager. And we talk about, well, you know, what would they like to see over the next six months? What would create an ROI for the company? And that might be in a project, a new project that, that they might take on. And it, it might create anywhere from 50,000 to maybe a couple million dollars for the company if they were able to achieve that, that objective. Uh, and so, and, and so we're working toward, toward that objective, but, you know, a coaching client will come to the call with different requests, uh, uh, from time to time, they may have a problem or a challenge with one of their employees and they're not quite sure how to, how to deal with it or, you know, with the executive, these are, you know, very intelligent people. A lot of times what it is they're not slowing themselves down uh, mm -hmm. enough and giving them time to think about it. But when they're on the call with me, we can usually uh, get to a solution within an hour versus them taking a half day or, or longer uh, to figure it out. Uh, so, and then, you know, Sometimes they'll discover, you know, that what they, what they want their employee to do, they're not doing. So yeah. <laughs> that's usually a big aha for them. And then it's, it's getting them to model that behavior for, for their employee and set up accountability systems and, 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 and so on. Uh, and it, it depends on how the person's wired. Sometimes they need to know how to create trust with others. Um, Sometimes they need to uh, need help uh, presenting uh, uh, in terms of doing a presentation and maybe even crafting that presentation, uh, understanding uh, a value and, and, and you know understanding value in the context of, they're, they want to influence someone in some way. Well, how do I sell someone on something? How do I articulate it in a way where they get the value of it for, for them? Um, 
And then we talk about hard business problems sometimes, you, you know, just how to go about solving a particular uh, business problem, how to create a strategy, uh, how to go about creating a vision. And I find that a number of people, well, people struggle with vision. Because a vision is the big picture, and a lot of people, given their behaviorism and motivators, which are their decision-making filters, they're limited. And that's why a lot of people struggle with these big sort of lofty visions and so on. Because if you're a very high C, you're, you're very precise. Um, you're afraid of making mistakes. You're, you're risk averse. And so a lot of times they'll shut down the creative process. And they, they, those are the ones that really struggle with, with, uh, with creating vision. Uh, we're on, and that's the introverted side. On the extroverted side, where you have the DI, Ds and Is, um, they have, uh, uh, they're able to, to uh, sort of see the vision, see the big picture, be a little bit more optimistic, and, uh, and uh, paint, a, paint a, a picture of, of the future. So in a nutshell, those, those are some of the things I, I do with my clients, but it, it, it's what they want. So I'm there to serve them and help them achieve what it is they, they want in their life faster, more efficient, more eloquently, um, more powerfully. You know, I was speaking to someone uh, a few weeks ago and he had committed to his wife, an entrepreneur had committed to his wife that he would have uh, coaching clients by April. He's been working on his coaching business for years and a lot of coaches are that way. Mm -hmm. A lot of coaches have not coached. Right. Uh, they call themselves coaches and they may get a client here or there, but they're not really, really coaching. Well, anyway, he, um, he was totally in a disempowered state and, uh, and I don't think he was aware of it. And so as we're coaching along, I could hear it in his voice. I could hear his energy level. Uh, I, I could sense the emotions he was going through. And I could tell that his, his stated beliefs were not in line with those emotions. Uh, so, you know, I challenge him around that. And, I, you know, one of the things we do as coaches is we do pattern interrupts. Mm -hmm. So I interrupted his pattern by, you know, I challenged him and then he made a kind of a wimpy sound in his, <laughs> in his uh, the state he was in and I mimicked it. And I think he realized I sound like that and, wow. and he came right out of it. And you could, and you could just hear, I could just hear on the call that he started to 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 shift in, in, in into a, a much more empowered state. Started to make better decisions on the call. Started to perform at a higher level, and it was all in his state of mind. And that, if I had to leave, uh, who whoever uh, is listening to this this interview, uh, one message, and that is. Your performance is based on your state of mind. And it's just ways of being. And you can choose the state you want to be in. So a state is made up of 
physiology. And that's, you know, the look on your face, how you're standing, how you're breathing, you know, your biochemistry, what you're eating, breathing, and so on. And then that's about 75% of your state of mind. And then it's the second component of, of your state of mind is focus and belief. What are you focusing on? What are you believing? Uh, one of the tricky things is we have limiting beliefs that um, most of us aren't aware of those beliefs that are preventing us from getting to where we want to be. So it's physiology, focus and beliefs. And the third one is, um, uh, let me see if I can, <laughs> so it's physiology, focus and beliefs. And, and, and the third one is, um, I'll just describe it and then the words will come to me. Mm -hmm. So the third one is what you say to yourself, oh, it's language. Mm -hmm. So what you say to yourself, um, uh, externally and internally, uh, the pictures that you have, ex you know, internally, externally, and uh, and so that's the third component. That's about seven percent, where the uh, focus and belief is about fifteen percent. So you have seventy-five percent physiology, fifteen uh, percent to eighteen percent focus and belief, and about seven percent language. Shift any one of those and you'll shift your state of mind. Interesting. So in, in what way might you find that someone's beliefs that they say, what they say they believe do not match up? Can you give us an example? Uh, yeah, I think we all do it. Um, if so, this particular person uh, can, can, you know, uh, talked about, um, uh, he had a fear of whether he could be a good coach. Well, I had assessed him and I looked at his, uh, his profile before I came to the call, which he didn't, I, I did cause I cared more about where he was going than he did in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I knew that, uh, coaching and developing others was his top competency. Oh. Um, so, you know, he didn't believe that he uh, could perform as a coach. That was one of the fears he had. I think it was something else, but that was what he was thinking. Um, uh, and But I knew not to believe that mm -hmm. because I had assessed him up front. That's one of the reasons why I assess people up front, because um, that way I get get the truth because the, the assessment they give the assessment the information people know it on some level what they are but you got to ask ask them and the assessment is based on asking someone what they don't like mm -hmm. and then it's able to determine what they do like because gotcha. we know what we we we're more in tune with what we don't like rather than what we want or what we want the future. And why do you think that um, we know but we don't know? <laughs> That's what I'm hearing you say. Is that well, we know but we don't know a lot of times. So because why? Is I, I I think we know what we don't want. And so we're very aware of that. And we're willing to, all of us are willing to state that pretty, pretty upfront. 
But if you ask somebody what they want, a lot of times they struggle with that. They're not so clear about what they want. And, but once you understand what they don't like and what they, what they uh, prefer staying away from, you're able to determine what they would like or what they would be like or what they are believing. And when you talk about language, you know, what we say to ourselves, what images we have about ourselves uh, or internally and externally, is that about just talking nice to ourselves? <laughs> I mean, what is that? Well, I mean, we talk to ourselves all the time. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's happening. We see pictures all the time, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's happening all the time. And we're getting this external input, you know, when we're seeing pi pictures and images, all that stuff uh, controls our state of mind. So depending on what you're hearing, seeing uh, from the external world, that can control you if you're not in control of your, of your five senses. And a lot of people are ruled by their five senses. I've learned to be in control over my five senses. So it's like when I tell my son I want him, I wanted him to feed his brain a little bit higher quality uh, information than he takes in. Like yeah, that could change his life. Right. Instead of spending time on Snapchat, spend more time on uh, I don't know NPR. Yeah, or reading a book. Right. Or doing something he enjoys doing instead of a passive activity. Mm-hmm. Depends so on what kind of learner he is. What you feed your brain, essentially, is what I'm hearing. Am, am I interpreting oh, what you're that? Free, yeah, what you, what you feed your brain is, 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 is huge. What you, what, who you associate with is huge. What you're listening to, the different types of TV programs can matter. If you're listening to a lot of negativity, you, you, earlier I mentioned fear. Well, there's a lot of things that are fear-filled which includes the news. Yeah. You're listening to the news all the time. Uh, you're just taking in fear. And because it's in the words, it's in the images. Mm -hmm. And you may not think that's affecting you, but it, at some point in your life when you're attempting to do something or, or, or pursue a certain uh, uh, line of action, you may not take those actions because it's something you've seen before or heard before. And you don't know where it's coming from. And that it becomes a limiting belief and you have no idea where it came from. And so, you know, you go, you know, I take you back to the spiritual, I, uh, the book of Isaiah 54, 17, and 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, it talks about, you know, anything, any thought, any imagination, which is an image that's not in line with the word of God, you want to cast it down because it'll, it'll affect, you, affect you in a negative way. It'll become a stronghold in your mind, which is a fortified place in your mind which is hard to get rid of and it starts to control you. And so when something's coming in that you know you do not like, you need to say what you do like or what you do want or what you do believe. And, you know, <laughs> you know, 
uh, landmark calls this thing uh, morass. Tony Robbins talks about it as clouds passing by your head. So we all have this, these ideas and thoughts that pop up in, in our minds. Mm-hmm. And some people call it the universal mind. We're all sort of attached in this one mind and there's negative thoughts and there's positive thoughts thoughts out there and they're just sort of circling you know floating around in in the universe and they just pop into our head sometimes and you know people that commit suicide and people are depressed they start to believe that those thoughts are them right well i'm a firm believer that crazy is contagious too so you want to stay away (laughs) from people who act crazy because crazy is definitely contagious (laughs) If you don't want chaos and mayhem in your life, stay away from the people who maintain chaos and mayhem in their lives. Right. So, our, yeah, our average, our income is the average of our five closest friends, right? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. That's what they say. Your network is your net worth, right? Yes. Well, if someone wanted to get a coaching session with you, if someone wanted to catch up with you and, and learn more about what you do, how would they go about doing that? Uh, they could give me a call. Uh, they could send me an email. Um, they could text me. However, they, they could connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, so, um, yeah, you can call me. Um, 650-468. 7616, that's my cell phone. If I don't pick up, I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. You text me. Again, that's 650-468-7616. The most reliable email is donhunter2010 at gmail.com. And you can link uh, link with me on LinkedIn, uh, the Donald Hunter or Don R. Hunter on LinkedIn. So that would be www.linkedin.com slash I in in as in Nancy slash the Donald Hunter or Don R. Hunter. Okay, cool. So if folks want to get in touch with you, you will reach out. Guys, call Donald Hunter at 650-468-7616 or you can email him at donhunter2010 at gmail.com or reach him on LinkedIn, LinkedIn slash in slash the Donald Hunter or LinkedIn slash in slash Don R Hunter. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. Awesome. Donald, thank you so much for appearing on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. It has been phenomenal. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Next up, our good friend Julia Black will be joining me for True Talk. And we are back with Julia Black and our segment called True Talk. Hey, Julia. Hi, how's it going? It is going well. How about for you? It's going really well for me, too. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Well, we were talking about leadership and particularly women as leaders. And, you know, there's so many ways that women are leaders 
in, in their life, you know, act as leaders or have to act as leaders in their lives. And of course it varies, right? You know, sometimes you may be a leader in, in one area, but not in the other. But, mm -hmm. you know, for me, one of the main ways that I think that uh, women display leadership is, is in their home. I'm a firm believer that as the woman goes, so goes the household. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you have kids or not. That's, that's something I believe. But women are also leaders at work or in their careers. Um, if they have a business, they're leaders in that business. Women are leaders in their communities at large, right? And, you know, just in terms of neighborhood stuff or school things. And uh -huh. then in their social circles, right? So there are all these different ways that women act as leaders. How do you think that that manifests itself? You know, what does it take for a woman to become a leader, to develop into a leader over time? I think the biggest thing, honestly, at least for me, I think the biggest thing was just realizing my own capabilities, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and kind of, and, and then in addition to that, my own sense of stubbornness where it's like, no, I, I will get this done and I won't depend on anyone to do it. Um, that's kind of one of those things that I've always had, but, um, you know, anytime something happened, like even, even when I was, you know, in college or in high school or something like that, anytime something happened, I stopped, I'd stop for a minute. Um, and and kind of, you know, like, let's just say there was, there was a time when I was in college where I got a flat tire. And when I was in high school, I would often like call my dad immediately and just call my dad, hey, I got a flat tire and he would drop what he was doing and he would come rescue me. But there was a time when I was in college when that just wasn't possible. So it was like, okay, what can I do? And what, what, what tools do I currently have that can help me solve this problem? Um, I had AAA, so I called AAA and everything was, you know, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, you know, but the, but my first thought, uh, and, and that first time when I knew that I had to figure it out myself, um, without calling my dad or without calling somebody that would help me, what it did is it reinforced the idea that it's like, Hey, I could actually do this. This is not, I am not a, I am not a helpless person. I am a, I can, I'm smart enough. I can do it. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of it all, I think because the acknowledgement that it is possible um, then made kind of every choice that I had, every difficult choice that I had after that um, easier for me to like figure it out, you know? So another example, when I, when my ex-husband and I separated, um, I actually didn't tell my family for a couple of weeks. I wanted to like get my brain around it. I still hadn't, we still hadn't like completely decided that we were get a divorce or anything. So found a place that I could stay at for a couple weeks while I was figuring it out. And I didn't tell anybody in my family because I wanted to make sure that I could, that I felt like I could pay all the bills myself. Mm -hmm. So when I did actually tell my family, my folks were like, you know, you can move back in with us. And at that point I was 29. Um, you know, you could move back in with us. And it was like, yeah, I know that it's there and I appreciate that it's there, but let's just see if I can do this myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was all kind of part of it is that once I realized that there was the opportunity, then, then I try and grab onto it. And if I feel like I need help, then I'll get it. Right. Um, well, that. that's part of, that's part of becoming resourceful, you know, mm -hmm. or recognizing your own resourcefulness, mm -hmm. you know, like I had a, a similar type thing. So when I went, um, 
when I went looking for a house in Atlanta, I actually got approved. You know, I like to go get my money first. Okay. Yeah. I always like to go get my money first. Cause I want, when I put in an offer, I want it essentially to be a cash deal. Yeah. So I don't just get pre-qualified, which is what a realtor does for you. What I do is go and do my financing. I just get myself actually financially approved and then I go shopping for a house. Interesting. And yeah. That's just my personal preference. I just want to know how much money I have to work with. I want them to know that I've got the money that they're not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I, I had my pre-approval letter come to me. My I'm approved for 200. I think I was approved for $230,000 and I'm like, I'm not spending $230,000 on a house mm -hmm. <laughs> because to me, that was pushing the outer edge of what I would be willing and able to pay for a house if something happened in my situation turn, my financial situation uh -huh. turn. So what I said was, first of all, you're not putting $230,000 on this letter. I want a different letter to give to the realtor that says $175,000. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I know about realtors, why? Because I, I have my real estate license. Uh, <laughs> you work with realtors, you know what they do. If you give a realtor a letter that says you're approved for, for $230,000 mortgage, they mm -hmm. are only going to take you to see houses that are $225,000 and up. Mm -hmm. They're not going to show you anything that meets your criteria that's less than that. So I said, no, you can put 175 on the letter. And that's what I had the mortgage guy do. He sent me a different letter. It said 175,000. And that's what I went shopping with because my plan was I wasn't going to spend more than 150,000 on the house. Why? Because I was being, I, I was being thoughtful about my personal financial situation uh -huh. and what I would want to deal with if things turned. And this was right before the recession was officially called a recession. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around, I remember looking around the Atlanta market going, something's going on here. I was still relatively new to Atlanta because I just moved up there. And I said, mm, something's wrong with this market, but I haven't been here long enough to know what it is. I can see something's wrong because there are too many houses that aren't selling that should be selling. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what's wrong. So I'm going to err on the side of caution. And I am glad I did because if I had put uh, an offer in and gotten accepted for, let's say, $230,000, guess what I would have been shortly thereafter? Freaking homeless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I would not have been able to continue that given the recession and what happened. I would have um, been like so many other people who unfortunately lost their homes. And so that's part of being a leader as well, is recognizing mm -hmm. your strengths, but also where you may have some limitations and then doing what you can to mitigate those or to try and anticipate those and work with them or around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as that, as that's happening, then, um, you're, um, you're kind of, you're being an example for kind of everyone around you, um, your kids, your other family members, you know, and, 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 and some of that has to do with, I think the, the mindset Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, you and I grew up in very different situations. And so, um, the mindset, so, so the, the kind of philosophies behind buying a house 
and how your family members view buying a house might be very different than those of mine. But like mm -hmm. my husband and I, when we moved in the house that we're currently in, we actually downsized and we bought a house that was less expensive than the house we were in. Um, and everyone from my parents, <laughs> the realtor, to the mortgage lender, everyone around us was like, huh, why are you downsizing? You're not going to be retiring. Why are you buying a smaller house? Why do you need to spend less money? Well, for me, I knew when part, part the, the buying this house was part of a long-term plan to actually stop to act to actually be able to quit my corporate job so i knew i needed to make sure that our expenses were lower right um, we didn't need a house as big as we had um we we bought it at the very at the the absolute bottom of the market during the recession because within five months the houses that we moved into went up in price by $60,000. Wow. Um, so we were in a really good spot. So I was able to look at it and everyone kind of went, well, she may be crazy, but she's, but she's stubborn about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so there's, and there's no, there's, you know, but it was, no, it was like, it was, I was, I was establishing my boundaries. Um, I was, ex I was setting an example that it was like, because like my folks and my aunt and uncle, they all, their theory behind buying a house is when you buy a house, you should be stretching yourself mm. because within a year you'll get a raise or you'll get something. And then all of a sudden it will feel comfortable. So every time they moved when they were, when they were all, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, the first year, everything was tight. Right. Um, and I kind of looked at it and went, nope, sorry. My husband and I hadn't had raises in a long time. And the, ra and, and if we, and the raise that we did get was like three or four years before then, and it was only 1%. So we knew <laughs> we didn't right. depend on raises anytime soon. So their philosophy was different. Right. Um, but, you know, knowing your boundaries and figuring them out and establishing them, I think, is a really important part of it, too. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the boundaries in part, you know, financially, but also um, with friends and family who are mm -hmm. kind of pressuring you. But they're also in relationships. That's really important. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. you know, I've had I've I've. I've had where I've had to make some decisions about a relationship, not necessarily because the relationship was bad, but because I didn't feel like I would be setting a good example for my kids um, with that particular individual because of some one or two things that that particular individual just did not understand. And I would establish a boundary. For example, no, you cannot come to my house late like it's a hotel <laughs> kind of a thing. And, you know, sometimes get the side eye, but I'm like, no, this is, this is my crib. This is not your place. You don't pay the mortgage here. This is, we are not, it's not like that. Therefore mm -hmm. you have to live by these boundaries, these rules. You're going to come at a decent hour. You're not going to come at all. That kind of thing. Because I wanted to teach my girls how I expected to be treated and they should therefore expect 
to be treated well or have a certain mm-hmm. amount of respect for themselves in their house, but also teach my son, you do not disrespect a woman in her household. Mm-hmm. If a woman tells you this is the law in her house, then that's the law in her house. That's just how it works. And you have to be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we worry about establishing these boundaries, whether they're personal boundaries, financial boundaries, relationship boundaries, what have you, professional boundaries. Because mm-hmm. um, I had similar pushback when I would not do things like fly a red eye out to go and do training um, and then I, I would have to be in the classroom at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Yeah. Well, how do you expect me to do my best work if I'm not getting there until five minutes before I have to be in the classroom? Right. No, I don't mind flying out right after a class. I'll sleep on the plane and I'll, I'll be at work the next day, no problem. But I'm not gonna fly, leave out at nine o'clock at night, get in, get in and then call myself getting an hour or two of sleep and then going going to train. I can't do anybody any good like that. And mm-hmm. I got pushed back because we had trainers who were willing to do that kind of thing. And I'm like, that's good for them, but that's not good for me. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think one of the reasons a lot of times we don't establish those boundaries and, and live by the boundaries that we establish is because we're afraid people are going to judge us. We're afraid people are going to talk about us. We're afraid we're going to lose friends or family or jobs or whatever. But I think if you live with your own integrity Mm -hmm. and you decide who you are, people actually respect you more and frankly would rather be around you. And the people who wouldn't want to be around you, wouldn't want to have you there, really don't deserve to have you in their lives anyway. That's Mm -hmm. my opinion. What do you think? No, I would agree with that. I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, the other thing that makes it, I think, hard to establish and actually live by your boundaries um, from a, from a larger kind of societal sociological perspective is that women in general are taught to be agreeable. Um, You know, they're, we're taught that we're not supposed to, you know, social conditioning kind of establishes that we're not supposed to be bossy and we're supposed to be likable. And so because that's kind of ingrained in us from when we're very young, anytime we try to assert ourselves or assert our boundaries, there's, there's kind of an invisible barrier that we have to go through because we need to break through that conditioning. Um, but the boundaries, I think, are so, they're so important. Um, because without them, um, you know, we're not actually going to be doing what's best for us or what's best for, um, you know, our jobs or anything else. Yeah. We have to, we have to be willing and able to speak up for ourselves. That's what I'm going to say that there may be some, um, racial and ethnic divides there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, simply because I think that, and I think that, I think that black women in particular, we get a bad rap for saying what we have to say sometimes, but I also think that in our communities, what, one of the things that we've had to learn to do is speak up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that we do it well all the time, but I think that as a group, I think African-American women tend to do a better job of speaking mm-hmm. up for themselves than a lot of other women do. And I think it's because we do 
we have an interesting history in this country. Um, one of them being that African-American women were fighting for the rights of African-American men in a way that African-American men couldn't fight for their own rights right. um, early on because they, it would be perceived as too threatening. So when there was a suffrage movement, um, black women weren't fighting for their right to vote, for example. They were by fighting for the right of black men to vote. Mm -hmm. Just things of that nature. I think that our, the way that our cultures have developed in this country is, is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Also because of the systematic breakup of black families uh, through economics and politics and, 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 and most recently, especially the, the criminal justice system, I think it forces black women to be more assertive in certain mm -hmm. areas, but then we get the angry black woman, uh, right. Moniker, but you know, I'll take that. <laughs> well, and well, the, and the, 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 the angry, the angry woman that the, how, whether, whether, whether she is black or white or Latino or some, some other race entirely, um, you know, the, the moniker of the angry woman, oh, but you're just trying to be difficult, or you're just, you know, Elizabeth Warren gets this all the time. She's like, all right, I'll be it. Let's do it. If it's going to get things done, then yes, let's do it. And I think there's, among a lot of women that I know, there is this, I don't even think they realize that they're afraid to actually speak up and be assertive about what their opinions are to not just to their individual families, but to the community at large. Yeah. Well, losing that fear is critical. Losing mm -hmm. that fear of being perceived as difficult or what have you. Um, it, it really is critical, but also losing the fear, like I said, of losing things and of people, because one of the things about being a leader is that you learn over time that you're going to lose things. And you're going to lose people. Not everything is going to be yours forever. And being willing and able to let those things go, not that it's not going to make you sad or disappointed, but being willing and able to let those things go is okay because we all suffer loss. It's really not about what you lose. It's about how you bounce back after you lose. Mm -hmm. That's what makes you a real leader, I think. Yeah, and, and at least when, when we're talking about having your own business, there is this fear, particularly when you're at the beginning, there is this fear of losing clients um, because then you're losing money um, or, but, but there has to be, but your kind of personal integrity, your personal, you know, living, running your business the way you think it needs to be run for your own business's health, for your own personal health, for your own financial health, for all of that stuff is more important um, than how someone takes it. Totally. Definitely. So guys, if you didn't get that, it's really important that you become resourceful, that you recognize your resourcefulness, that you lead by example, set your boundaries, live by those boundaries that you set. And your boundaries may change over time. So don't think everything's carved in stone, yeah. but your boundaries may change and then lose that fear. It, it, and, or let me rephrase it. It's not even necessarily losing the fear, but certainly doing it in spite of being afraid because mm -hmm. there's always something to be afraid of. Yeah, you may lose friends here and there. You may lose uh, lovers, husbands, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. 
you may lose money, houses, cars, loss happens, but it's how you bounce back and you will be the leader you want to be in your life and in the lives of others. Lead by example and be strong. Yeah. And I think one more thing about fear that I think is important to note is that if you, if you set your boundaries and you, and you, you work through them and you, you express those boundaries, regardless of your fear, what you'll find is that that fear is going to start to dissipate and it's going to be less the next time you do it. Because once you get through the disappointment or whatever the, whatever the consequences are, you're going to realize that it all worked out fine and that it's okay. Um, Cause that's important. Definitely. Julia, thank you for being on True Talk. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebarard.com. M-I-C-H-E-L-E-B-A-R-A-R-D.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Now make sure you check out our next episode, which will be on June 7th. We'll be on hiatus for the rest of Gemini season. It's my birthday time, y'all. But we'll have a great encore presentation of my interview with Cheryl Cooley of Climax. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the somewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.